If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 12. Gospel of Luke and chapter 12. We're going to be in verses uh, 22 through 34 in our time together this morning. Uh, I mentioned the last couple of weeks, if you don't have a Scripture journal because you weren't here when we started the series, or you misplaced yours, or whatever it might be, uh, feel free to grab one on the welcome desk out there, uh, either now or uh, before you leave, maybe that'll help you as we continue to journey through this uh, incredible gospel. Uh, Luke 12 is where we will be. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. It also be behind me on the screen in, your tra- in my translation as well, for you to follow along there. So let's go ahead and read this together. The Holy Spirit says, And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroyed. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. America is obsessed with happiness, and it's making us miserable. This is the title of an article published a few years ago by Ruth Whitman over at Vox, As someone who had just moved from England to the United States, Whitman observed America's inordinate obsession with happiness. And so she asked, is this obsession with happiness working? I want you to listen to what she writes. It seems as though happiness in America has become the overachiever's ultimate trophy. Modern trump card, it outranks professional achievement and social success, family, friendships, and even love. I start to wonder whether the high-octane approach to the pursuit of happiness that I'm seeing here in middle-class California Is that in any way representative of American culture more widely? Is all this joy hunting just the ultimate luxury for a privileged bunch of high-income Californians? A bit of digging suggests not, she says. The explicit and focused quest for happiness as a goal distinct from the rest of life is seeping through virtually all sections of American society. Oprah Winfrey, the reigning queen of happy seekers, is widely considered to be one of the most influential people in America having brought her signature brand of self-improvement and spirituality to hundreds of millions of Americans. Americans who buy a billion dollars worth of self-help books and audiobooks each year. Meanwhile, the internet bursts with links to motivational happiness seminars all across the country aimed at the unemployed, rebanding destitution as an exciting opportunity for personal development. It occurs to me, she says, that all these happiness pursuits often don't seem to be making people particularly happy. Americans as a whole invest more time and money and emotional energy into the explicit pursuit of happiness than any other nation on earth. 
But is all this effort and investment paying off? Is America getting happier and happier? Are Americans more content than people in other countries? Is this great American search for happiness actually working? She says the answer appears to be a pretty clear no. Somehow this great nation that included the pursuit of happiness so prominently in its founding principles has been shown by various international comparison studies to be one of the least happy places in the developed world. She goes on to conclude this. According to the World Health Organization, as well as being one of the least happy developed countries in the world, the United States is by a wide margin also the most anxious. With nearly a third of Americans likely to suffer from anxiety disorder in their lifetime, the happiness-seeking culture is clearly supposed to be part of the solution, but perhaps it is actually part of the problem. Perhaps America's precocious levels of anxiety are happening not just in spite of the great national happiness rat race, but also in part because of it. So, says Whitman, even as Americans are focused on happiness, even as we are the wealthiest country in the world, even as we have never been wealthier, none of that has actually made us happier. In fact, the opposite has happened. While we've never been richer, we've also never been more anxious. Perhaps there's a correlation between trying to accumulate more with a growing internal angst. Maybe there's a correlation between a sustained focus on oneself and anxiousness. Jesus seems to think so. Following his teaching on greed and covetousness, Jesus immediately turns and says this command. Do not be anxious. Are they related? Is the pursuit of more and more stuff that Jesus just talked about related to an excessive need to worry? According to Jesus, there is, and this is how, okay? Both greed and worry come from the same root. Both greed and worry come from the same root, a failure to trust God. Alistair Begg says the connection is clear. Since life does not depend upon stuff, Jesus says it's a dumb idea to worry about stuff. But now here's the thing about worry and anxiety. Just like greed, we're all prone to it, aren't we? Just as we shouldn't have sit, sat smugly and said, I'm in no danger of being greedy, maybe other people, but not me. We shouldn't similarly say today, I'm not prone to worry and anxiety, maybe other people, but not me. We're all given to worry and anxiety, and Jesus knows this, which is why he's given this lesson to his disciples. But he doesn't just say, don't be anxious and move on to some other topic, right? He's not like we've all had that well-meaning friend, perhaps we've been that well-meaning friend, who offers the unhelpful advice, don't worry, when we're particularly anxious. Rather, Jesus offers us reasons why worry is foolish and the solution to our anxiety, okay? So this is what we'll do. Let's consider the reasons Jesus gives to why anxiousness is foolish, and then we'll go to the cure, okay? So under this first heading, why worry is foolish, there's four reasons, okay, that we see in this text. Number one, first, worry is foolish because life is more than stuff. Worry is foolish because life is more than stuff. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Well, why, Jesus, why? Because life is more than food, he says, and the body more than clothing. Jesus is essentially saying, you know why you're so worried? Because you're too focused on accumulating all this stuff. You spend your life focused mainly on your possessions, but life is about more than just getting things. In fact, it's even more than eating and drinking. 
It turns out our incessant pursuit of things is actually dehumanizing because we've gotten to the point where our identities are tied up in what we own. We make value judgments on people based on what they wear, what they drive, where they live. We make value judgments on ourselves based on those same things because our purchases are driven, let's all admit it, our purchases are driven in part by what will people think of me? What does this all do? It reduces life to material things. It wraps our primary identity not in being images of, image bearers of God, not in being children of the Father, not in being disciples of King Jesus, but in what we own. You see how dehumanizing this can be? We've reduced to what inanimate objects we can accumulate who we are. And this means we don't really own anything, right? It means it owns us. Are you not more than stuff you accumulate? Are you? Are you not more than what you eat or drink? Are you not more than what you drive or where you vacation or what you wear or where you live or what appliances you own? But now here's the thing. You are told, I get an hour with you, but you are going to go out into your week and be told literally thousands of times a day that life is not more than what you can get or what you could be. We're being convinced at every turn that we need this or we need that to make us happier, fulfilled, or the envy of our friends or peers and neighbors. We're being told that our lives are not complete unless we get this or that product. Really, the ads we see aren't about the product. They're about you, about how your life, contrary to what Jesus says, is actually not more than the stuff that you could get. Writing in 1985, Neil Postman said this, the television commercial is about products only in the same sense that the story of Jonah is about the anatomy of whales, which is to say it isn't. Which is to say further, it's about how one ought to live one's life. You know, this week I came across a study that was published several years ago where researchers found that the more materialistic people get, the more their emotional well-being takes a dive. They found that people typically turn to material goods to make them feel better. Have you ever done that? Who doesn't like just going on Amazon and buying something to make you feel better? Right? We've all done that. But that at never works is what they found. When we're feeling insecure, we orient towards materialistic solutions, said the researchers, and we live in a culture that continually tells us our worth as people is based on our bank account. So there's this cycle of buying things to feel better and then not feeling better (laughs) when we get what we think we need. So we need to do what? Go get something else, right? So we're trapped in this endless cycle of thinking our worth is based on what we have, but we never feel up to snuff. So we just buy and buy and buy and our dehumanization of ourselves and others creates not this vivacious life of freedom and happiness, but just more misery. And, And then... The more we have, as researchers said, the more things there are to worry about. Or to put it more simply, in the words of 20th century philosopher Notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems. Now, we know this from both experience and logic, don't we? People living 200 years ago didn't worry about their washers and dryers breaking, 
or their car breaking, or their dishwasher breaking, or their fridge breaking, or their phone breaking. And do you know why? Because they didn't have any of those things. They had anxiety, sure. But research continually tells us that the more we have, the more we define life by what we own. And then the more prone we are to anxiety and worry. But life is more than all of that. That's why it's silly to worry about these things. Is that not what Jesus is saying? He's wondering, why do you worry about stuff if life is more than that? Isn't your body more than what you wear? Let me hear you. As an image bearer of God, isn't your body more valuable than what you could put on it? You, you need food to live, but isn't life more than what you eat from meal to meal? Now, not to be too graphic, but isn't life more than something that you may enjoy for a few moments only for your body to ingest it, break it down, and expel it? Isn't your life worth more than that? It's settling for too little when we define life by our stuff, by even what we eat or wear. You are worth more than that. There are so many more important things you can focus on than your stuff. If we define life as just what we own or eat or wear, what a sad life that is. You're more valuable than that, is what Jesus says. And this takes us to our second reason why worry is foolish. Worry is foolish because you're worth too much to God for him to not take care of you. Second reason why worry is foolish. Because you're worth too much to God for him to not take care of you. It says, Jesus, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns. And yet, God feeds them. Then he asks, how much more valuable are you than the birds? Then he says this in verse 27, 28, Consider the lilies, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus invites his disciples to essentially open their eyes. And he uses an argument from the lesser to the greater, doesn't he? He said, just look around. Fix your gaze to the sky. What do you see? Asked Jesus. You, don't you see the birds of the air? Do they sow or reap? Do they have storehouses and barns in which they save? Are they like the rich fool who builds barns to store their stuff for a rainy day? Do they go to work and clock in and toil all day to earn a paycheck to buy seed? <laughs> no. And yet, God cares for them and he makes sure they have what they need. Yes? Now, says Jesus, fix your eyes on the fields. Are they not beautifully adorned? What do they contribute to their beauty? How much did they spin and toil and clothe themselves? They contribute nothing, and yet God clothes them more splendidly than even Solomon. Are you not worth more than flowers? Which are here one moment and gone the next. And what about the grass, asked Jesus? It could die in a day, and then you get thrown into the fire. Are you more valuable than grass? See, creation itself instructs us against worry. Jesus invites us to simply observe the natural world. In fact, he's arguing, just look around. Just look around. Take a look, urges Jesus. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Look at the grass. What do you see? You see God caring for them, and they are free from worries. That gets you and your stomach all in knots. 
You know, in all the birds that Jesus could have chosen, he picked ravens for this illustration. You know, ravens were considered unclean birds. They were among the least respected birds, and they could even be used for sacrifices. The ancients thought they were these filthy creatures that were good for nothing. So Jesus chooses them on purpose, and he says, if God will care even for the unclean ravens, if he ensures they have food, how much more will he take care of you? Think about flowers. Flowers blooming now and make us all sneeze, right? They will be replaced this time next year, right, by other flowers. In fact, the ones we see today won't even be here by the end of the year. Think about giving or being gifted a bouquet of flowers. You could spend hundreds of dollars, right? You can spend hundreds of dollars on flowers and you give them as a gift. And yet, no matter how expensive, no matter how beautiful they are, we know we could put them in a vase with food, but it's delaying the inevitable. In one week, they'll be in the trash. But God still clothed them. They didn't have to worry about being clothed. God did it for them. Are you not more valuable than flowers? Martin Luther said the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, you who are to be devoured by the cows. God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and teachers. This is such a simple lesson, isn't it? And it's ironic. We typically worry and become anxious in part because we overthink. Isn't that true? How many of us have been worked up because we played every possible scenario out in our heads? How often have you gotten yourself in a, in a tizzy over something that never happened? Like Mark Twain said, I've had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never happened. But the irony is that Jesus wants us to think, but not like that. Not in a way that imagines all kinds of scenarios that may befall us. He wants us to think by just looking at the birds, looking at the grass, and looking at the flowers, and dwell about how they haven't a care in the world. Why? Why don't they worry? It's simple, isn't it? Because God, it's because they have a God who takes care of them. It's that simple. Doesn't God care about you too? And even more than filthy birds or transient grass or flowers, just think, says Jesus. Just look, just observe, just consider, just contemplate. Are you more valuable to God than birds and grass? Such a profound and simple lesson, yet one we far too often miss or forget. And we haven't even mentioned that we can all look back on our lives. You can look back on your life and see how God has cared for you through all kinds of difficult circumstances. What Jesus is saying is that worry is faithless. Isn't that what he says? He says, oh, you of little what? Faith. Because what he's been describing is a world in which God cares for the smallest, seemingly most insignificant things. And so if we see that, and we know that, and we turn around in our fraught with anxiety that he won't take care of us, he asks, where's your faith? He's saying that when we worry, we're telling God that he can't be trusted in this situation or that. Just as a rich fool built bigger barns because he didn't trust God with his future, we worry because we don't trust God with our present or future, whether immediate or distant. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't advocating for some kind of work-free life where one sits back and does nothing, assuming everything will become, just come to us, right? 
He's against worry, not work. One commentator said the birds are not always worrying that the supply of worms may run out, yet they do not expect the worms to crawl down their beaks. Similarly, Randy Alcorn said, of course the birds provide for their immediate future through labor, building nests and obtaining food for their young, but they don't maintain a nest in the mountains and another at the beach. Neither do they fill their cellars with freeze-dried worms. Birds do the work that God created them to do. They sing when they work. They don't hoard, and they instinctively trust their creator to take care of them. Should we know who know God's grace do any less? Jesus' answer, of course, is no. But third, the third reason why worry is foolish is because it's useless. Number three, worry is useless. Look again at verse 25. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? Now, commentators are divided. You probably have like a footnote in your Bibles. Because Jesus is either referring to adding an hour to your life or adding length to one's height. And it, it can be translated either way. But th those both get the same point across, don't they? It's a simple question, isn't it? If you try really hard, can you add an hour to your lifespan? You try really hard. If you try really hard, could you add an inch to your height? Of course, it's an absurd thought, but it's an important one because if you can't add even a small unit of measurement to either your time or your height, why do you think worrying will do you any good or change anything? You see, this is Jesus' point. If you can't change anything through worry, then what are you accomplishing really? Now, here's an illustration we could all relate to, right? Because we've all been to Atlanta. When you sit in traffic, that's a mile long, and you're going so slow that it seems like you're actually going negative miles per hour and breaking the space-time continuum. And you have some place to be at a certain time, and you feel anxiety and anger building. Have you been there? What does that do? Does it make traffic speed up? <laughs> does it make the gawkers stop gawking at the wreck? Does it make time reverse so you're not late? When you get into a lane that seems to be moving faster, and then it becomes the lane that stops with the lane you just left, <laughs> picking up speed, does your frustration change anything? You, you could be shouting in your car, you get red face and all that, but it doesn't accomplish anything. So why were you mad? What did you accomplish besides getting worked up and into a terrible mood? Do you see? Someone once said that worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And see, here's what this really comes down to, right? It comes down to our frustration that we aren't actually in control. We can't control the traffic flow. This bothers us. We can't control the medical results. This bothers us. We can't control when we die. This bothers us. We can't control when things break. This bothers us. So when traffic is slow and when the tests come back, when something breaks, we get anxious and annoyed because we're really just angry that we are who we knew we were all along. Finite creatures who can control very little. But if we remind ourselves of the principle we looked at just a minute ago, that God cares for us more than any other creature, animate or inanimate, in the whole of the universe, then not having control would be less of an anxiety-inducing bummer. 
Jesus wants us to see how much we lack control. That our worry may give us the illusion that we have some control, but we really don't. Therefore, the logical conclusion is that worry does what? Nothing. Nothing. I'm not breaking news, am I? Actually, it not only does nothing, it actually hurts us. Kevin DeYoung said this, have you ever looked back on the hard times in your life and thought, I don't know how I would have made it through that if I hadn't worried. Nobody reflects on the past and concludes, money sure was tight, but worry really pulled me through. Junior high was difficult. I only wish I could have worried more. The diagnosis was frightening, but then I got all my friends to worry with me. I haven't checked this with doctors, I know, he says, but I don't think they ever stand at the bedside and say, well, ma'am, it doesn't look good. All we can do at this point is worry. Jesus says that worry does nothing. It's counterproductive. It's pointless. It never accomplished anything. Our experience teaches us this, yes? Jesus doesn't say, just say, don't worry. He's essentially asking, what has worrying ever gotten you? Look back on those times that you've worried in your life. What did that actually do? It didn't change your circumstance, did it? It didn't add one hour to your life. It didn't make you feel better. So worry not, says Jesus, for it is pointless. But a final reason before we get to the cure for why worry is foolishness is because it's godless. It's godless. Reason four, why worry is foolish? Because it's godless. In verse 30, Jesus says that all the nations of the world seek after these things. In other words, unbelievers worry about the things of life. Unbelievers care an inordinate amount about their possessions and about the cares in this world. They worry about the things of earth because their eyes are set on this world alone. They worry, and they try to fill their lives with meaning and purpose and value, but go on being empty. They worry and are anxious because they still live under the illusion of control. And you know why? Do you know why they live like that? Because they don't have God as Father. Isn't that what Jesus says? They don't have God as Father. They can't call God Father. Their unbelief means their relationship with God is at present alienation. He still rules, they just don't realize it. Nor do they, as of yet, know God in a tender, familial way. So they worry. So they build up treasure on earth. that a thief can just come in and take. They build up treasure in stuff that will eventually decay and be thrown away and replaced. They build up treasure that a moth can just eat through. They eat and drink under the delusion that they're married because tomorrow they die. Everything they have is stockpiled on earth. So they worry. Jesus wants to know this. This is a hard question, okay? Do you worry like pagans do? Do you stockpile things on earth like pagans do? Is your approach to money and possessions indistinguishable from your pagan neighbor or coworker? Is your relation to your stuff the same as unbelievers? Then he wants to know this. Why would you be like them? You have God as Father. He knows your needs. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. He provides treasure in heaven. 
And you would be like pagans who don't know him at all, let alone his father? Martin Lloyd-Jones says the Christian should not be controlled by these things. Whatever may be his position with respect to them, he is not finally to be controlled by them. He should really not be made happy or unhappy by these things because that is the typical condition of the heathen who is dominated by them in his whole outlook upon life and his living in this world. Can I ask, friend, is your outlook on life different than the unbelievers that don't know God as Father? Is your relation to your possessions distinguishable from your unbelieving neighbors? They live for this world alone. Is that what you're living for? When it comes to worry and anxiety, is your outlook the same as people who don't know God? Truly, if you took a step back and looked at your life from the outside and you compared it to the people you know who don't know Christ, would you see a marked difference? If not, Jesus says, that's a problem. Why be like pagans? They don't have God as Father, but you do. Shouldn't that make a difference in how you live and approach everything from work to possession to time management? Jesus shows us the silliness of worry for the Christian, doesn't he? If, if, is God your Father or isn't he? Will he fail to provide good gifts to you? Will he fail to take care of you? He takes care of a stinking, filthy bird. And they aren't his children. Christ didn't come and die for them. Will he take care of you? He knows when birds are hungry or hurt. How much more does he know what you need? He closed the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. Won't he care for you even more? Is he your father or isn't he? You know, I'm a father. I have five kids. What do I require of my kids? You said that's a lot of kids. You're right. What do I require of my kids? For them to be my kids. <laughs> that's what I require of them. I ask them to obey me and be good kids. And guess what? They don't have to worry about if they're going to have breakfast tomorrow. Who's going to take care of it? I'm going to take care of it. And why? Because I'm their father. <laughs> we brought them into the world. I'll take care of it. They don't have to worry. So what do I require of them? Just be my kids and you let me take care of your clothes and your food and whatever else you need. And I'm not a perfect father. But the heavenly father is. He knows your needs. Will he meet your needs or do you think he can't get the job done? Do you doubt his fatherly care? You don't think he knows what you need? <laughs> he knows what, my friend, <laughs> he knew what you needed before he even laid the foundations of the world. Before your mama's grandma was born, he knew the needs you'd have today and tomorrow and next year. Can he handle it? Or can't he? We don't want to put it in quite those stark terms, but, but isn't that what this comes down to? Wouldn't it be insulting if you as a parent got this multi-thousand day streak of feeding and housing and clothing your kids, and they come up and say, I'm worried that you won't feed or clothe me. Wouldn't you feel insulted? Wouldn't you ask if you've ever let them go cold or ill-fed? So what do we suppose God our Father thinks when we're anxious and worried? 
Is he a good and loving and caring father? On top of that, you know, he's unlike every other father in that not only is he perfect, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. He's unlike any father in his streak of loving kindness stretches back and forward eternally. He's unlike any other father in that he's perfect and he bats a thousand with his care. Will he take care of you? Does he know what you need? Do you trust him? You see what Jesus calls his disciples in verse 32? Little flock. This is a picture of tenderness. Jesus is saying that God, God's people are precious to him. They're precious in their weakness. They're precious in their smallness. Jesus isn't calling on his followers to become big and independent. He loves them at their most vulnerable because it is the most vulnerable who will run to God as father and lean on his care. If you depend on your stuff like pagans, if you depend on your portfolio like the pagans, if you're banking on your retirement like the pagans, if your focus is on this earth and this life, like the pagans, if you're trying to maintain some control, like the pagans, if you fancy yourself as strong and independent person, like the pagans, then you won't turn to God as Father. And you'll stay anxious and worried. Your storehouses will be only on earth. Your life will look like people who don't know God at all. If you see yourself as a child of God because of adoption provided through the body and blood of Christ, then you'll see how weak and needy you are and you can rely on the loving care of the Father. You see? It's his pleasure to give good gifts to his children. He doesn't, you understand, he doesn't give begrudgingly. <laughs> he gives out of the abundance of his love and with gladness and generosity. Why wouldn't we turn to him at all times? But now what's the cure? What's the cure? We've talked all this time about worry and why it's foolish. So how do we overcome? How do we overcome worry? <coughs> Here it is. <coughs> I don't know how to drink. Here it is. Seek first the kingdom of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Hey, let's, let's say it together. Seek first the kingdom of God. And that word seek, look at that word seek. It's what's called, not to get overly technical, but I think this will be helpful, present active imperative, which means it's a continuing, unceasing quest. It means that one does not seek the kingdom first once or twice or three times, Okay. It's a continued posture of daily life. Seek first the kingdom of God. And what will the results be? He tells us, doesn't he? All these things will be added to you. How much of the things? Some of the things? A quarter of the things? Half of the things? A little bit of the things? All these things will be given to you because God loves to give good gifts to his children. That's what you are. Do you guys see? Why don't we seek first the kingdom of God? I mean, let's, let's be honest, okay? For many of us, we might not even seek second the kingdom of God. Or third or fourth or fifth. We might not seek the kingdom of God at all. Why not? 
because we're looking first to ourselves. We're looking to this earth. We're looking to our treasure that we can store here. We're devoted to our comfort and our safety. And if we're doing that, we won't seek first the kingdom of God. Especially not, it especially won't be first because the kingdom of God means risky obedience. It means getting out of our safe, little, comfortable lives. See, we don't want to risk because we're afraid it will be too costly. That's anxiety. That's worry. That's what Jesus says is a lack of trust in him. That's why he gives this promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. If we're tempted to say, you know, I would seek first the kingdom of God, but I have all these other things, right? I have all these other things I need to take care of. I got all these worries I need to tend to. I don't want to risk too much because what if this or that happens? But Jesus is saying, but all these things will be added to you. What are you afraid of? How often, let's be honest, how often are we kept living safe, comfortable, casual Christian lives because we won't seek first the kingdom because we don't trust Christ's promise that all these things will be added to you? We say, what if it costs too much? But what if it's too risky? What if I lose this or that? What if, what if that causes me to get out of my comfort zone? What if my bottom line is affected? What if it's too painful? Oh, you of little faith, is God your father or isn't he? Is Christ your Lord or isn't he? Does the spirit indwell you or doesn't he? Does he keep his promises or not? Because when we are hesitant to seek first the kingdom of God and go on living our safe suburban Christian lives in our anxious bubbles because we wish more things were about us, we're telling Jesus that we aren't sure he'll come through on his words that all these things will be added to you. Jesus is calling for an altered focus that looks away from self, looks away from earthly treasure, and looks towards the kingdom and says, I will risk I will go, I will put the kingdom first to the point that if Jesus wants me to sell what I have and give it to the poor, then it will be my pleasure because I know he'll provide. Does that sound too radical to you? Is that what he's saying though? If we aren't seeking first the kingdom of God, we have to ask why. Why not? What could be the reason? It must be because we're seeking something else first. And it is displacing our seeking first the kingdom. It must be because we think seeking the kingdom first is not worth it. It must be because our priorities are out of whack. It must be because we're too earthy. It must be because we're focused on ourselves too much. Why else would we be so devoted to our own comfort? Why else would we be so risk averse? Why else would we want to collect for ourselves big barns? Why else would we see Jesus' words to sell? This is what we do, isn't it? When we read this, sell all you have and give to the poor and we scoff and we hand wave and we say, we assure ourselves that he didn't really mean that. No way we do. You know, David Platt tells of a time when he was pastoring in Birmingham, one of the wealthiest men in the church came to his office after Platt had preached on the rich young ruler. And he looked at Platt and he said, I think you're crazy for saying some of the things you're saying. And then he paused a moment and he said, but I think you're right. And so now I think I'm crazy for thinking some of the things I'm thinking. And then he went on to say that he was going to sell his large house, 
give away most of his possessions. He talked about the needs he wanted to invest his resources in for the glory of Christ. And he looked at Platt with tears in his eyes and he said, I wonder at some points if I'm being irresponsible or unwise. But then I realize there's never going to come a day when I stand before God and he looks at me and says, I wish you would have kept more for yourself. I'm confident that God will take care of me, is what he said. Could you do that? Could you do what he did? Would you? Let's be honest. Do you think if, if, if you did that, God would take care of you? Do you think God would never call you to do something like that? Because your idea of following Jesus is casual and comfortable and easy. But what if that's not at all what Jesus is calling for? What if, what if that's a shaping of what it means to, be, to follow Jesus that is utterly different, our casual, comfortable Christianity? What if that's so different to what Jesus has actually taught? Platt says again to everyone wanting a safe, untroubled, comfortable life free from danger, stay away from Jesus. Danger in our lives will always increase in the proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. Maybe this is why we sit back and settle for casual relationship with Christ and routine religion in the church. It's safe there. The world likes us there. The world likes us when we are pursuing everything they're pursuing, even if we do put a Christian label on it. As long as Christianity looks like the American dream, we will have few problems in this world. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And after that, you know what you're supposed to do? Keep seeking and keep seeking and keep seeking and keep seeking and keep putting me first on the throne and you'll have everything you need. That's what he says. You don't need to worry because faithfulness will always be met by fatherly care and love. Always. That's a promise from a God who cannot lie. So if that's the case, what are we afraid of? What are we worried about? I'll ask again. Is God your father or isn't he? Does he keep his promises? That we have to seek first the kingdom of God and he will be delighted to give us the kingdom itself and everything we need. Everything, including power for the mission and courage to put Christ and kingdom first in our lives. Make no mistake, my friends, someone is going to be first in your life. Who's first in yours? The king and his kingdom or something or someone else? Who has your first and supreme allegiance? Alistair Begg said, if I'm going to seek the kingdom of God, I'm seeking God's control over every aspect of my life. God is not interested, Christ is not interested in becoming second in command in your army. He's not interested in co-partnership in a duplex. He's not interested in riding in the backseat of the car of your life. He is king and Lord and seeks the throne of your heart. And one of the reasons for worry in my life is when I'm tempted to retake areas of my existence back into my own domain. And sometimes it's almost as if he lets me so that he could say to me again, you see what a dumb idea that is? Now let me sit back, now let me sit back up here and where I should be, seeking God's control over my, me and seeking God's character in me. See, having a kingdom first focus means to have a singular focus in giving Jesus soul, loyalty, and fidelity. It means looking away from self and towards the kingdom. 
which inevitably leads to looking to meet the needs of others. Isn't that what he says? Because when you do that, when you meet the needs of others, you'll be accumulating treasure. And guess what? Heavenly treasure is non-perishable. Jesus knows that to be tied to possessions and focusing on earth will cause one to have divided loyalty. So he calls for us not only a kingdom focus, but on a loose grip of our stuff with a readiness to give all towards God's service, if that's what he calls for. Do you see Jesus' rationale in verse 34? Heart and treasure, what? Go together. What he's asking is what you treasure most. Darabach said, if one values people, then one will work to meet their needs. If one values self, then one will collect possessions that perish. The ultimate concern, then, is treasure. Not as humans define it, but as Jesus defines it. Now, you know, for years... Sila has been trying to get me to go to the optometrist to get glasses. And I've resisted because I know I don't need them. Uh, you know, so what if I squint to see the score of the game I'm watching or that I've enlarged the font on my sermon notes in recent years, right? That doesn't mean anything. Uh, but I know if I did have to get my eyes checked, as you've, uh, you've done before, they'd put me in that chair and they'd put me, make me look at, into that big machine. You know that big machine with all those lenses in it? It's called a... Uh, Foropter, by the way. I had to Google that. And try to, you try to read all these letters, right? And, and the optometrist is going through all these lenses and, and seeing which one I could see better through, trying to find the right one. You know, in a similar way, in these teachings, through this text, Jesus is trying to give us lenses to correct our blindness. He knows we're nearsighted in that we focus too much and too often in this world. He's saying, my little flock. I know you get worried sometimes. I know you're anxious sometimes. I know you could be like unbelievers with your possessions and your ambitions. But don't you see, that's the, in part why you're anxious. That's why you're afraid. He says, don't you see that God is your father and he knows your needs and delights in caring for you? See clearly by putting the kingdom first in your life. See the world the way I see it, he says, and care more about other people than you do for yourself. See the world the way I see it by stockpiling treasure in heaven. And he says, I'll take care of the rest. Put on these new lenses. And the world is trying to define life a certain way for us. It wants us to see things the way they see it to prioritize the way they prioritize, to live for what they live for. And Jesus is trying to correct our vision. Are you a worrier, can I ask? Are you somebody who worries? Do you get anxious? You know, you're probably, everybody here is probably anxious about something this last week. You're probably going to be worried about something today. You'll probably worry about something tomorrow, and this week, and this month, and next month. But don't you see that this text is reminding us all of the foolishness and uselessness and faithlessness and godlessness of worry. It's reminding us that we need to seek first the kingdom and constantly see the world through the gospel-colored lenses. It's reminding us that the cure is what it's always been, to look at Jesus, who is the kingdom of God shown up in a person. It's reminding us that he really is everything, that he really does care about us, that we can, as Peter said, cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Do you know that? I hope you do because if not, you'll keep running yourself ragged with anxiety and worry. Would you go to Jesus today? 
Would you begin a new seeking first the kingdom of God? Would you remind yourself every day that God is a loving father who sees and knows and hears every sigh and every groan and every tear? Let's get this straight, okay? Jesus is not irritated or frustrated with your worry and anxiety. He wants you to get rid of it because it's hurting you. And he wants what's best for you. That's why. And what's best for you is to seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes as a dad, I just want my kids to trust me. This is what Jesus wants you to do. Trust your father. He's worthy of your trust. You know, some of you came today worried about all kinds of stuff. Some of you are dreading this coming week because of what looms before you. Some of you are constantly anxious and worried about even the smallest of things. Some of you forget that you are worth more to God than birds and grass and flowers and doubt his care. Some of you are trying to retain control of your life and you're angry or anxious when you're shown how you can't change anything by worrying. Some of you treat money and possessions and priorities in a way that is indistinguishable from people who don't know Jesus at all. Some of you are anxious because you don't trust God will provide, even if you say so with your mouth, your heart says something different. Some of you aren't putting the kingdom first or even second or third. It might not even be in your top ten. Some of you are living casual, comfortable Christian lives that centers on yourself and your wants and your desires. Some of you refuse to risk for the kingdom of God because you don't trust that all these things will be added to you. I bet one of those fits you. But here's the answer that fits them all. Yes? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus today. Begin anew or for the first time to seek first the kingdom and you can trust that all these things will be added to you.